Recorded live. This is an interactive, interactive. interactive podcast designed for audience participation. Come talk, talk, talk. text chat, or listen live at TalkShoe.com. I'm allergic to your cat. And our cyber jockey, Zach Slotnick. Oh, and the with us is our technical director, Dr. Judy Wow. Dieter, are you there still? Hello, Dieter. Hello there. All right, we do have Dieter. Welcome, I Welcome back, Dieter. There's some music. Can we turn the music off? Oh, we got some music on? There we, now we go. Yep. Okay, very good. Welcome back, Dieter. We've had a couple of weeks of... Uh, Flashback Friday the last couple of weeks here while uh, Zach and uh, and uh, Zach and Cliff were away. And All right. We're ready for a new show today here. Good. We've got some great segments today. Uh, we have the Microband Tournament of Champions announcement. We have our current events section. We also have uh, Mike O'Reilly, the president of Tradewinds Environmental and John Bruno, Vice President of Zinzer and Company. Before we get started, you can contact us at any time at info at iaqtraining.com. And we'd, of course, like to thank our sponsors. Today's sponsors are Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. And our other original and continuing sponsor, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. I'm going to turn it over to Cliff now for the Microband Tournament of Champions announcement. Thanks, Joe. I've got an update on the microband trivia challenge. After talking to Zach, we came up with an idea. We have three finalists from last year. The three finalists are Mark Brenner, Chad Seams, and David Bailey, each of whom won a round of the trivia challenge by successfully answering three of the trivia questions. Our challenge to them, and this goes along anyone else that's listening who wants to join in in the challenge, is to compile a complete list of all the trivia questions from all past shows and answer as many of the questions as you can. The winner will be the person who answers the most questions by our deadline of January 19th at showtime. In case of a tie, the person answering the questions timeliest will prevail. As we have numerous unanswered trivia questions, uh, these can be mined on past shows. The question for this week, in deference to our guest, uh, John Bruno from the Zinser Company, deals with paint. Early American colonists used an environmentally friendly paint for painting home interiors and furnishings. What ingredient commonly found in colonial kitchens was this paint based on? All right. Thank you, Cliff. And before we move on to Mike O'Reilly to contact the show, you can simply go to www.talkshoe.com. 
go to their website and follow the directions to get your PIN number. Our show ID is today, I would like to turn it over to Cliff Slotnick to introduce. No problem. Thanks, Joe. Michael O'Reilly is one of the lucky few who can parlay their values into a career. Michael has been both an environmental contractor and disaster restoration contractor since 1984. In 1986, Michael founded Tradewinds Environmental Restoration, turning a lifelong passion for the environment into a thriving business model. Tradewinds cleans up and performs restorations in a wide-ranging type of environmental disasters. In an industry where many jobs are outsourced, Michael develops in-house expertise. He has pioneered emergency response agreements guaranteeing clients a fixed price and the guaranteed response time for responding to emergency services. This result is a national recognized leader in environmental rehabilitation, boasting over 30,000 successful projects from anthrax abatement to Hurricane Katrina cleanup. Featured on WNBC, WABC, National Public Radio, CNN, and published in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Daily News. Mike is also a published author. He wrote Inside the Mind, The Green Companies, a review of business owners in the environmental industry. Guided by his belief that one simple act can change the world, Michael is improving America one project at a time. Good morning, Mike, and welcome to the World Show. Good afternoon there, uh, Cliff. I can, I can answer that question, by the way, on the paint. Is that oh, right. you can answer it. Uh, go ahead. We'll take it. How about milk? How about milk? You're right. All right. <laughs> so now you've got one. We only need a couple of more, and you'll be in the challenge as well. Okay, great. Michael, what type of contaminant do you feel poses the greatest risk to people working and living indoors? Is it hazardous materials such as lead or asbestos, an airborne particulate such as house dust, or is it a bacterial or fungal contamination? Um, you know, I, 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 I'm going to have to say uh, lead, um, Cliff. I, I think lead is... Uh, is something that uh, isn't focused on as much as it probably should be, and it's a, a poison. It affects you immediately, and uh, and I see uh, a concern uh, with it. I, I also see a, a concern that contractors are, are are not focused on it when they're doing other types of cleanups. That's that's. Uh... An interesting perspective. I I understand you're located in New York, and New York has been, haven't they been a little more proactive recently, at least over the last couple of years or five years now, uh, with respect to the lead issue, Mike? You know, they have, and some of the interesting uh, statistics are that lead poisoning is on a decline. But 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 one of the uh, one of the issues that I see is that uh, from a contractor's perspective. I, d I don't think we have our uh, workers tested uh, uh, often, if at all, and I think uh, they're being exposed uh, to the lead. But New York is, has, you know, overall been proactive, yes. Now, when you do your – you also uh, do a lot of hazardous materials abatement or HAZWOP or hazardous waste-type abatement, and I'm, I'm curious, is that a growing field or – is that kind of leveling off? 
Um, we feel that it's a, it's a growing field, actually, as opposed to uh, some of the other things we do that's kind of on a, uh, been stagnant as of late. Uh, we feel a level A response is, is growing. In, in fact, uh, this year past, we've, uh, we've completed quite a few mercury cleanups. Mercury seems to be in, the, uh, in focus uh, as of late. Now, when you uh, – let me just um... – Explain to our guests, level A, that would be the highest level of protection, Mike? That's right. Yeah, we, we, get, call, we get called in when, when, uh, when a, a client is faced or, or uh, even a fire department or a police department is faced with, with what we call unknowns, where there's maybe a mixture of uh, chemicals that were spilled, and we'll go in in level A, which is uh, essentially SCBA uh, equipment, and we'll determine what we're dealing with and how to deal with it. And, uh, and then and then take it from there. You know, being located in the same zip code where the World Trade Center was at, what was your company's involvement in uh, September 11th? Actually, we had uh, we had a really wide uh, mix of uh, of a response work. We were we were brought in the first evening by. Uh, the local power entity to set up decons, but we did everything from uh, bloodborne pathogen issues where there were where there were unfortunate uh, corpses and uh, to oil spills. Essentially, just about every building for I would say a three or four block radius, uh, their basements flooded with uh, with oil and other contaminants, even if they weren't directly impacted by the. Uh, by the planes, uh, and it ran the whole gamut to a lot of mold cleanup. Uh, we actually did one project where there was uh, a mixture of, um, of of contaminants, and, and in fact, that that project was uh, over over eleven million dollars. That cleanup. Wow. How many people did you have at, at you know at the maximum working at any given time there, Mike? We had about two thousand. And we actually were limited uh, to that amount um, because we didn't uh, we didn't bring anybody in um, that wasn't trained hazwopper slash asbestos. Uh, we felt and made a decision early on. In fact, we a couple of our clients wouldn't use us uh, because they didn't think uh, we had to go to it that extent. But we we actually used everybody uh, that we could find that had that kind of credential. Uh, and was able to pass uh, uh, health exams. You know, you've thrown around a number like this $11 million, and I find that kind of intriguing. What was the largest project that your company has done? What type of job was it? What type of property was involved? You know, and what were some of the dynamics of, of that project? Was it a 911 job or was it something else? Um, well, we've done actually, we've done a couple of very large mold projects uh, in excess of, uh, of $10 million. And the, I'm not talking any reconstruction here. This is strictly uh, the cleanup. Our, our largest, though, was a, a project that we did over the course of the last 15 years, which exceeds $30 million. It was an asbestos project where we actually cleaned um, office spaces as they became uh, unoccupied in between leases. Uh, but we've done some some fairly big ones. We we did a, did a large mold project in Hawaii that most people know about, and, and we did a, a a corporate headquarters in New York, uh, a mold project that it, that was in the ten million dollar range. Also, yeah. 
you know, we know you're from New York, and we want to talk about white powder in New York, but the white powder that we're interested in uh, isn't cocaine. Uh, we'd <laughs> like you to tell us a little bit about your experience uh, in dealing with anthrax. I understand that your company has done multiple projects. And, I mean, how do you do this, Mike? Where did you get the guidance uh, you know, to do this? Well, having the experience uh, doing uh, Level A certainly uh, certainly helped, and, and um you know, I actually got a lot of guidance from you uh, because we we uh, used uh, some technology that included uh, that included thermal fogging. Um, but we we did projects in Washington. Uh, we did a post office. We did a federal building. We did Governor Pataki's offices. We we we. I'm going to say we probably did 25 to 30 percent of the anthrax cleanups in the country. Well, the fact that any of your people, the Go fact ahead. that we're a GSA contractor too, Cliff, helps us out. We we were uh, informed on how to work with the government uh, during an emergency, and and uh, so that helped us in that in that particular arena. Did you suffer any occupational injuries in dealing with the anthrax stuff, Mike? No, not at all. In fact, no. you know we're we're real proud. Our our uh, comp mode is point zero seven, which is extremely low, you know, considering the work we do. So, no, we didn't. We didn't. We 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 take a lot of precautions, and and we were in a minimum of level B um, when we did this these anthrax cleanups. Let me uh, again go back to that level A, B, C, and D for a moment, Mike. I I don't know if all of our listeners are familiar with those levels at level a being the highest where you've got self-contained breathing apparatus and chemically resistant protective clothing uh level b would be the next level don can you describe which that is a also bit which would us? also be which would also be uh supplied air but uh, less restrictive in as far as the outer garments are concerned and then it decreases from there to to you get to d which is what most people are familiar with uh in 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 our industry, you so can't hold me to the fire be... here. My superintendents probably know more about the uh, <laughs> beats than I do. I, 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 I understand. I, I don't have any paychecks I have to sign today. That's for sure. Right, right. <laughs> well, that was the. I was kind of leading into the the fact that in the mold remediation industry, they don't use the A, B, C, and D. They kind of follow these guidelines that are out. And I'm curious what your thoughts are with respect to the level of protection necessary for mold remediation projects? Well, I think most uh, most uh, experts that know me and who have uh, experts that I've worked with or, or, or taught with uh, realize that I am not a believer in uh, anything sh- short of a, a P100. I, I don't believe in, in 95s. I, I've just uh, seen too much abuse of that type of uh, respiratory protection and and. Um, you know, I, I, I think uh, I think uh, some of the documents we'll see coming out here in the future will will push towards a higher uh, a higher uh, a protection factor as far as respirators are concerned. What about on the what about on the bodies themselves in terms of are you a big believer in Tyvek or some type of paper suit? One of the things that's always concerned me is overheating these employees and over protecting these employees and not relying on engineering controls. Can you right. comment and, on that? And that's, you know, that's, that, that, I think if you fall back 
to uh, the asbestos abatement contractors, in particularly the ones that have been around for quite some time, they've learned how to use engineering controls to cool the temperatures uh, in your work areas so that uh, heat stress and heat stroke don't become such a such a huge uh, issue but but certainly with mold uh, uh, we're not going to uh, any real extremes uh, other than we are using a Tyvek type of suit uh, semi breathable and and um, we we don't see the, the heat stress and the heat stroke so it's it's a, it's a non issue for us and again a lot has to do with an understanding of makeup air and how you can control the makeup air and and, and, and keep the temperatures and also just monitoring temperatures in a work zone. I mean, I've seen contractors who don't even do that, and, and, and that's foolish. You know, Mike, one of the things that you said was uh, comment on knowledgeable asbestos remediation contractors and bringing some techniques that they learned in asbestos abatement over to mold remediation. And I've got a question on your opinion of misting. Uh, as, as a remediation tool for mold remediation. It's commonly used in asbestos, and I know there's some controversy over it, but I would just like your opinion. Well, I strongly believe that it's a tool that that uh, should be used. Uh, it, it, you know, I, I, again here, engineering controls are, are very important, uh, and and the type of misting, you know, it, it, when when we talk misting, we're not talking bringing a hose into a work area and wetting um, material down. It's uh, misting if you're directing it at an asbestos contractor. Uh, generally, would would be the use of an airless sprayer, uh, where you can uh, the you know you can control the dust. Um, to, to practically zero with very, very little liquid. And, and if you have enough air movement, uh, you're drying the air as quickly as you're, you're misting. And, and uh, I, don't, I wouldn't do a job without, uh, without misting, to tell you the truth. It would be very rare. Mike, I understand you provide training as well, and you do quite a bit of training. And I'm, I'm always curious about training issues, one being when you train asbestos workers that are going to become mold remediation workers, cross-train them. What are the things that you try to emphasize to them that are different with respect to mold remediation versus asbestos abatement? You know, that's a, that's a good question. I don't, um, Cliff, I don't see a heck of a lot of difference. Uh, again, you know, we're, we're, our, our training is extremely pointed to personal protection and and you know it's very very similar and also engineering controls um, I'll give you an example of you know uh, engineering controls as an asbestos abatement contractor who's been in it for a while understands it as opposed to a lot of uh, uh, mold contractors that we see or we come in behind to do a, a cleanup uh, we you know we at Tradewinds as, as well as other people use negative air machines to filter um, and and there's a, a real misconception uh, in the industry in the field that that if you're changing uh, you're doing air changes four times or six times an hour that you're filtering out all the air in your your work area where you're probably not filtering 60% of the air in your work area but if you position uh, your your machines in such a manner uh, and tested smoke tested or, or, or um, 
the the you can actually accomplish two things. Not only do you create negative, you're actually getting uh, any of the particulate to uh, to your machine. So you're you're filtering. And and uh, again, if you focus on these things, clearance becomes uh, really pretty simple. Mike, we have quite a few people on the line here. I just wanted to check first with uh, Dr. Wow uh, and uh, see Dietrich. Do you have any questions you wanted to uh, ask Mike while we have him here? Not right now. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm listening very carefully, but um, let's go a little bit ahead, and maybe I come up with a good question. <laughs> well, I okay. hope that's a good thing, Doctor. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it is. It, it, it's a very good thing. <laughs> we like to check in with Peter every once in a while, Mike, and, and see what he's thinking. Okay. We've also got uh, I see IEC News on the line. I'm curious if uh, IEC News had a question or not. Actually, I, I tuned in uh, on the phone only because uh, I couldn't really hear it online. <laughs> okay. Well, welcome. Is that Steve Sauer? Yeah. Hi, Joe. Hi, Steve. Welcome. We'll be uh, having a little segment next week with Steve. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we've got a few others, and uh, we will try and get to those questions as soon as we can. Um, anything else before the uh, – the other question I guess I have was, the difference between training restoration contractors who are going into mold remediation. What do you find they are in need of, uh, or what do you feel you need to emphasize the most with restoration contractors that are going into mold remediation, Mike? Well, I think, uh, you know, the, 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 the biggest issue uh, is just how important um, the, the, uh, the, the, personal protection aspect of it is. Yeah. Most restoration um, uh, individuals, and, and uh, again, I've been doing this that end for a long time as well. Uh, don't look at uh, personal protection as a as a as a as a major focus. So I, I say that's probably uh, our biggest concern, as well as uh, your workers uh, understanding that the the uh, the litigation aspect uh, when you're involved with environmental cleanups is certainly uh, a bigger a larger presence than if you're cleaning up after a fire, for example. Do you find that type of uh, liability starting to creep into the water damage restoration industry as well? Well, you know, I always thought that the water side of our industry uh, was the most litigious. Uh, you know, it's interesting to have watched the insurance carriers focus on mold abatement uh, and and uh, not on the water side where, you know, you're you could be creating a, a, a moldy environment and very often do. Um, Mike, yep. you, know, you spend more money probably on business insurance than many companies gross in a year. What insurance coverage and pricing trends do you see? Are prices going up or going down? Have they become stable? Is uh, hazardous abatement, the, the types of insurance that are required to do this type of work, is it becoming easier or more difficult to get? Well, you know, I see I see the availability uh is is there as opposed to maybe a year or two ago. Uh but that's that's essentially on a claims made uh, type policy. And and the prices are coming down with claims made and I think contractors and owners sh in particular should understand what claims made 
represents as opposed to other types of uh, uh, coverage. But but certainly from a claims made point of view, there's there's more availability and and the prices are coming down. And a lot of organizations are are, are joining. Uh, Joining in and and uh, focusing on getting their their uh, constituents uh, uh, better deals. With respect to the claims made, that that type of uh, insurance just covers for that particular job and not and for that time period, as I understand it. And that you know the what, what the let me let me give you the 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 positive of claims made is that you can get it and you, you at least have insurance going into a project. The negative is, is that if a carrier, uh, and let's create a scenario, say a carrier out there, XYZ carrier, has 200 uh, abatement contractors, and all of a sudden they see a rash of claims coming in, they could cancel everybody. And at that point of cancellation, the you as a contractor don't have insurance for any work that you've done prior. And that's that's the the real shortfall with claims made, as simple as I can put it. The minute you lose your insurance, whether you get canceled or you go to another company, anything you've done in the past uh, has has no insurance coverage attached to it. As opposed to an occurrence type insurance policy, where you can change your carrier, he can cancel you, uh, and you will still have coverage for anything you've done in the past. Okay, you anticipated my question there, and that, that is the occurrence type of policy. That's an so occurrence. I, That's occurrence, yes. I'm assuming you would recommend that uh, customers look for contractors that have that type of Well, ab- absolutely. You know, I, I get the question all the time, and we have some, some major day-in and day-out name clients, and, and, you know, we sell – our company on our insurance because and 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 I pass this to the industry if you can get better insurance and it's not going to cost you a tremendous amount of money more uh, it's very it's a very easy thing to sell because the insurance carriers the underwriters are actually actually qualifying the competence of the contractor. They don't just give this insurance out. They, you know, they will only give it to contractors that have a, a good track record, that have been in it for a while, and that will uh, stand up to the scrutiny of the underwriters. Mike, what's your opinion on government regulation with respect to hazmat, <clears throat> remediation, disaster restoration? Is there... Too much, not enough. I mean, I guess you could take each and asbestos abatement, for instance. There's a lot of regulation. Are you too much comfortable with that? <laughs> yeah, too much. Yeah, I, mean, I think you you get that. Some areas, I think there's too much. I think in other areas, there there's not enough. Uh, an example there is that you know you have in asbestos, and actually it tails into a lot of other arenas because people uh, believe state of the art. If they do it in this in asbestos, you got to do it in mold. You know, you have you have things like conflict of interest. The third party can't be associated with the contractor. Yet in hazardous waste, somebody can go in and do the assessment and the cleanup. So, I, you know, I, I think there's some shortfalls in some arenas and, and overkill in others. And we could probably well, talk I, for days on that one. Yeah, I, I just want a quick follow-up because it goes back to something you said earlier. You on these hazardous waste or these 
unknown situations actually go in and characterize what the situation is in your level A. So you are, in essence, acting as the third party, and then you clean it up. Is that yeah, but we will we won't we won't leave that project unless it's a, a, a bona fide third party uh, clears us. And we actually hold true to that. This brings us into another arena. We actually hold true to that in almost everything we do, including mold. Even on the residential side, we don't. We want an independent third party clearing our work. You're right. We get in there, and and because we do that, we have errors and omissions, which most most uh, contractors don't have. Uh, we do get in there and make the initial assessment uh, often, but but we, uh, again, we do not assess uh, that our project is finished or or or, or, or cleared to a, to a certain point uh, without a third party. And you you prefer to have that on every project. That's on every Sometimes project, and, and I could tell you, Cliff, it is somewhat difficult, and you know there is some expense to that. But you know, if you're looking to be in the business for any length of time, it's the smart thing to do. And and you know, if you dovetail that into uh, the quality of insurance, I mean, if you can, if if, if you can de can defend that you do that, certainly your underwriters are going to look at you as a special contractor as opposed to somebody just throwing up a shingle on the side of their house. Mike, I've got a. I'd like your opinion on the toxicity of fire-related particulate. You know, we, we seem to hear a lot after 9-11 about asbestos and other airborne particulate. I'm just talking about soot, the soot that we get in houses after fires. Do you think it's a serious health risk to employees or not? Well, Cliff, I think you could probably answer that better than I with your chemistry background. I've always felt that it can't be good for you. The And I know in the, and I'm talking 20 years ago, when I used to go into a lot of fire projects, I used to feel it in my lungs. And, you know, there's the school that says if you breathe too much of anything, it's no good for you. But I think soot being that it's, uh, you know, hydrocarbon-based uh, in, in most circumstances, is in most instances, is, you know, can't be good. And I think we'll probably see a lot uh, come out because of 9-11 uh, as far as research. Um, although 9-11, you know, having been there from day two for, for months and months, was was special in that you had a bunch of everything. There were so many unknowns combined. Uh, I don't think they'll ever be able to point point at really what was the most problematic. But but because of the research that I think that it's going to drive, I think I think we should see some interesting things uh, with soot. I know uh, Marty King has done some research, and I don't know if he's ever come to any final conclusions. But uh, I'm going to leave that to the scientist. Okay. Before uh, we go, Mike, is there anything you would like to add that we missed? Uh, <laughs> well, I could talk, you know. The, the, no, there's not, there's not really, you know. If, certainly if there's any questions, you know, I'm, I'm, we're, we're a pretty broad-spectrum type of company. I could answer any questions that might be uh, out there. But um, what, what about a tip for consumers? A tip for consumers. Yeah, or maybe a trade secret for our remediation listeners, whichever you prefer. Okay.
Okay. Um, I for for uh, well for for a remediation uh, contractor again I'll fall back on uh, using state of the art equipment and trying to get your best insurance and selling that uh, that 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 is uh, you know certainly part and parcel to the growth of Tradewinds uh, to a pretty considerable size uh, company um, the the um, also, I, 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 you know, to mold contractors, which apparently is the, you know, the big, um, the big environmental thrust right now. Uh, I would suggest to the restoration contractors that they, they look into um, asbestos abatement type um, uh, workers that have been in the business for a while. Not the ones that have, you know, there's some that have been in it for a short time. It's like anything else; you have good ones and bad ones. But if you if you look in and you and you and you and you do your research, you'll you'll find uh, workers out there that can put up containments in no time, which make you a a certainly a, a better contractor, and they they understand um, uh, how how negative uh, works, and and they understand uh, the if if there was a heat stress or heat stroke situation. So so I you know I would suggest that, and I you know again I could think of a bunch of things. Well, we, we'd love to have you back, and uh, before we go, though, is there a way people can contact you, or should they just go to your website? Well, yeah, they could go to my website, and if there's anybody, um, you know, that, that has a particular question, all they have to do is uh, is email me, and, I, and I'll get back to them. Um, hopefully, I'll be so busy that I won't be able to do it immediately, but uh, I, I, will get, I will get back to them. Is that tradewindsenvironmental.com? That's right. T W or TWER.com. TWER.com. That's right. All right. We had some intro music for you here, but we're going to play it on the way out, Mike. Thanks for joining us. Okay, and, I'll be leaving uh, you now like then. To stay, you're welcome to stay on the line if you'd like, and uh, if not, we will talk to you soon. Okay. Uh, we have a round table that we do at the end, Mike. You're pleased to stay with us if you've got a couple of more minutes. Oh, sure, uh, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll hang on. Music, <laughs> Great. All right. Okay, thank you, Zach. Now, before we move on to our next guest, we have two current events we'd like to talk about. The first one is uh, going to be a, a little clip that we found from actually uh, this is on salmonella risks from pet rodents that uh, people can get diarrhea causing salmonella bacteria from pet rodents experts warn in the new england journal of medicine usually people get salmonella from contaminated food but they can also get it from contact with animals notes the cdc's stephen swanson md and colleagues cliff I've got mine. Mine comes from the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, it deals with antimicrobials. There's draft guidance for pesticide registrants on the use of antimicrobials, pesticide products, in heating, ventilation, air conditioning, and refrigeration systems. This was published December 29th. 2006. The purpose of this publication is the agency is reopening the comment period and seeking additional public comment 
on a draft pesticide registrations notice entitled Use of Antimicrobial Pesticide Products in Heating, Ventilation, Air Conditioning, and Refrigeration Systems. PR notices are issued by the Office of Pesticide Programs to inform pesticide registrants and other interested parties about important policies, procedures, and registration-related decisions, and to serve as guidance to pesticide registrants and Office of Pesticide Programs personnel. This particular draft would once and final provide guidance to the registrants concerning EPA-registered sanitizer, disinfectant, and antimicrobial products whose labels bear general directions for use on or incorporation within hard, non-porous, or porous surfaces, but which are not specifically registered for treatment of HVAC systems. For more information, contract Tracy Lance with the Antimicrobials Branch of the EPA. Her phone number is 703-308-6415. Her email address is Lance, L-A-N-T-Z, period, Tracy, T-R-A-C-Y, at EPA.gov. Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. Before we move on to our next guest, I'd just like to remind our listeners that IAQ Radio is approved for certification renewal credits through the American Indoor Air Quality Council to get information on certification renewal credits, just send us an email at info at iaqtraining.com. We have also uh, had a significant price reduction this year on the uh, certification renewal credit program to make sure that we get our listeners as many opportunities as possible to grab those CRs. All right, our next guest, before we get started, I believe we've got a little intro music, Zach. I like that, Zach. Thank you. Very good. John Bruno is vice president of Zinzer and Company, a paint company which is over 150 years old. John has 40 years of experience in the paint industry and has been with Zinzer for 32 years. John is responsible for Zinzer's retail business in Canada, Bermuda, and throughout the Caribbean. John also directs Zinzer's commercial business in the United States. He represents Zinzer at most of the shows related to disaster restoration and the IAQ industries, and he has trained thousands of restoration and IAQ contractors through Zinzer's Paint and Primers 101 program. Through this intimate and frequent contact with contractors, John has gained valuable knowledge and insight into the restoration and remediation fields. Welcome, John. Are you on the line? I'm on the line. Good afternoon. Uh, Welcome, John. Thanks for hanging in there with us. We appreciate you being with us. And my first question is for you, John, what what is a low VOC paint, volatile organic compound paints? Okay, a low VOC paint contains usually less than 50 grams per liter of VOC. Uh, Normal paints are in a range between 350 and 450. So uh, it would be a a great uh, reduction in VOC content, uh, and it would be less than 50 usually. Why do we have these paints, John? Well, basically, uh, it started in California with the South Coast Air Quality, and um, 
they have these paints to to obviously to limit the amount of uh, ozone deterioration and emissions into the uh, atmosphere. Uh, VOs, high VOC paints, or all any VOC, really causes ground level uh, ozone and smog as well. And uh, and they're trying to you know cut down with that obviously for better air quality for everyone concerned. You know, you mentioned California. Are regulations for paint manufacturers universal throughout the United States? Uh, they are. There's two. There's several different laws. There's the California South Coast law, which is the most stringent, and then there's what they call OTC states, which is other than California. And other than California <laughs> states, they have a little higher VOC level uh, they, they, that they allow. Uh, but South uh, Coast Air Quality, which is the southern point of California, has the most stringent uh, VOC regulations. I, I actually I, we learn something new on every show, and I'm I was interested to hear that um, the initial reason for the low VOC paints was not necessarily the indoor air quality problems they cause, but the possibility of outdoor air quality problems. Um, what other advantages and disadvantages are there for using these low VOC paints? And let's concentrate on both advantages okay. and disadvantages. Well, from the, from the, the advantages are obviously less emissions into the atmosphere, so better, better uh, air quality uh, for all concerned. The disadvantages, however, is in the application um, in order to make paints lower VOC, you have to take out solvent uh, and a lot of additives that make the, play, make the paint flow better, brush better, roll better, uh, and also coalesce better. Uh, so as you take these additives out to lower your VOC, uh, you're increasing pigment, and uh, it, they just don't work as, as good as the higher VOC quality paints do. John, how did all this lead that we're worried about get in the paints to begin with? Why is it there? Well, lead, when I started in the industry 40 years ago, lead was the mainstream ingredient uh, for paint because of its ability to give you hide. Uh, it made really it made paint hide very, very well. In fact, I can remember selling a product called LZT, which stood for lead, zinc, and titanium. Uh, <laughs> and it was in, a, in, a, it was in an old uh, uh, alkyl-based material that took three days to dry when you applied it. Uh, but once hope you never saw it anywhere near Aaron Brockovich. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you would have to uh, check the weather forecast for three days before you applied it to make sure it wasn't going to rain. Right. Uh, but the paint would last for 35 years. Uh, so today, you know, when you take those chemicals out because of the hazard, you replace them with something else, and their quality is just not as good as it used to be. What other types of preservatives are you using now in paints? Well, most paints have uh, bactericides, mildicides, and fungicides in them. The bactericides are used to protect uh, the wet uh, film. In other words, uh, they're used as a preservative to make sure the paint uh, doesn't go bad before you open a can and use it. And then the mildicides and fungicides that are added are for the dry film protection. Once the paint is dry, then it protects that film from uh, uh, mildew growing on it. What's the difference between an antifungal paint and a fungal-proof paint, or are they one and the same? Well, we don't say fungal. We say uh, mildew-proof mildew or mildew-resistant or antimicrobial. Okay, the best analogy I can give you is if you were a police officer and had a choice, would you use a bullet-resistant vest or a bullet-proof vest? Uh, 
Uh, <laughs> that's a good analogy. You know, the one slows the growth, the other one stops it. And uh, the same thing, you know, do you want to slow the bullet down or do you want to stop it? And the mildew proof paints actually just stop the growth. It's much, much better. Now, do these paints, and maybe you can help clarify this for me. I get confused on this treated article exemption, John. The EPA has regulations, and Cliff just mentioned on one of the current events some changes to the um, mm-hmm. some of their regulations. What Do the paints fall under treated article exemption? Uh, yeah, do some? Yes, do I? Yes, they do. Um, um, most uh, paints that make any claim of uh, killing uh, mold uh, comes under the EPA guidelines, and you have to use what they call safe harbor language. And the safe harbor language is a guide uh, that the manufacturers go by uh, where you can, where they actually tell you what, the EPA tells you what's permissible to put on a label and what isn't. And the whole effort is to not to mislead the public into believing that this paint is a miracle coating, that just by putting it in a room it kills everything around it. Most of the safe harbor labeling says that it will control mildew growth on the paint film only. And uh, that's what the safe harbor language is all about. So if you make claims that it will control mold growth, you have to have that specific language that EPA approves on the on the label? Exactly. There's certain languages, uh, uh, statements that you can make based on what you're claiming. And uh, the EPA uh, has a publication. It's called the Safe Harbor Manual, basically. And and if you're claiming uh, any type of uh, antimicrobial uh, qualities, you have to be very, very uh, explicit and distinct in what you say on that label as to not to mislead people thinking that by using that coating, every, all the mildew is going to go away forever in the whole room. You know, it just doesn't work that way. John, John, I always thought the distinction was uh, if, it, if it's a treated article, that means that what we're protecting is we're actually protecting the paint film itself. Exactly. And for that type of claim, uh, as long as the ingredient that's added to the coating is approved for that use and is an EPA uh, registered active ingredient for use in antimicrobials, coatings, and paints, that you can add that for that express purpose, have some test data, and then claim that your dried paint film is protected. There You're are some paint protected. coatings manufacturers that want to go beyond that and actually try to get some sort of extension of that covering to the surface that's being coded, and those are the products that in most situations would be registered. Right. Uh, basically, if you're making any claim for killing uh, mold or spores, then you'd have to be EPA registered. If you're making a claim that you are going to prevent mold from growing on the coating, you really do not have to be EPA registered. Now, uh, the reason why we don't uh, have our product uh, EPA registers because our product is a finished coat and tintable. And once you tint it, you change the formula. And with the EPA, you cannot change formulas. Once you put a formula on file as registration, it has to stay that way. And any deviation from that formula has to be rechecked and retested and reapproved. So uh, on our clear product, however, we are going for EPA registration because you don't tint tint to clear product, and that's mostly an in-cavity application anyway. 
an in-cavity application so that after, for instance, uh, water damage, you would then coat the uh, structural components that are remaining that haven't been torn out? Yeah, basically, once uh, water damage or you had mold contamination, uh, once the mold was removed, uh, then you would use this coating uh, in the cavity, which is a clear coating. And, and some of the IQ inspectors prefer clear coatings because they can actually see through them and make sure that the mold has been removed. Um, and what it does is it prevents the future growth of mold for up to five years, whether or not that surface is subject to high humidity or, or water intrusion again. And this is a product that's coming out? Did I no, it, catch that correctly? No, it's been out. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, we, we've, we've had uh, these antimicrobial products now for 15 years. Uh, that was our next question, yeah. So they've, been around, for... they've been around a while, and uh, we first introduced it uh, 15 years ago um, and as, as a specific uh, job application for bathrooms. Uh, where you had mold contamination in bathrooms constantly because of the old houses and no air ventilation or whatever, uh, people were constantly killing mold and, and painting. Uh, so we came up with this product to eliminate uh, mold growth on a paint film for up to five years in bathrooms when high humidity was always present. And uh, Permaloid is one of the only products on the market that can be used in that, that way and that effectively for that period of time. Let's switch gears for a moment. What is shellac, John? Well, shellac is a natural resin which is created by an insect, and it's harvested twice a year, and the two major countries of origin are India and Thailand. And to make a long story short, basically an insect attaches itself to a limb of a host tree, uh, extracts the sap from the tree, and converts that sap through her body to create what they call lac. And that lack is harvested and goes through a number of different processes, uh, but eventually turns into what we call shellac and also shellac-based primers. You know, would I be lying if I said it was bug excrement? <laughs> it, well, yes, you would. It, actually, okay. it's, it's bug perspiration, if you will. Okay. Okay. Okay, it actually comes through the pores, okay, of the insect. And interesting enough, uh, this is Mother Nature, it, it's, you know, it's fascinating, that the insect secretes just enough wax to leave an opening within that incrustation so a new newborn young can escape through that hatch and start the process all over again. And what surfaces is shellac suitable for indoors? Uh, just about anywhere. Shellac is known and has been known for years uh, for great adhesion qualities. It'll stick to just about anything. And also for its great sealing properties. Uh, it seals everything up really, really well. So you'd be hard-pressed to find an area within the home that it couldn't be used on. Why would you not use it outdoors, or why is it not recommended for outdoor use? Well, we, we recommend it for outdoors in small areas, Uh uh, because of the flexibility of the film. Shellac is a pretty hard uh, uh, film, and in cold weather areas where you have contraction expansion based on weather being uh, 10 degrees to 90 degrees, uh, shellac just doesn't have the flexibility you need for exterior applications. Uh, interior, obviously, there's only about a 20 degrees temperature swing no matter what time of year it is, so it's not that as critical interior as it is exterior. 
And it's what's the permeability on on shellac? I'm, uh, do you know off the top of your head? Well, it is. It's a very uh, it, it's a vapor barrier, and uh, and but every batch of shellac is different, and so it can't really make a general statement that it's always the same perm rating. But the last time we tested, it was 0.4, which means that 99.6 percent of moisture will not pass through it. John, what's rule number one for someone that's going to paint the surface? Well, rule number one, the basic rule of any coatings is the coating you put on is only as good as the coating you're putting it over. Uh, paint is a lot like common sense. You know, you don't want to paint over coatings that are that are peeling. You don't want to paint over dirt. You don't want to paint over anything that's going to impair the adhesion, uh, regardless of, of what quality you're putting over top of it. Would it be your recommendation in a fire and smoke damage situation that the surfaces be washed before they would put on uh, one of your primer coatings? Uh, yes, and not just fire damage, but any surface, actually. Uh, the One of the first rules on the back of every paint can in America says make sure the surface is clean, dry, and free from dirt, grease, and whatever. And obviously that, that goes without saying on every job, and in particular fire jobs, because with fire, you not only have a lot of uh, deposits on a wall, you have, you know, contamination from the water that they and the organic material that burned in a fire being deposited on a wall. So that stuff would have to be cleaned off rather thoroughly before you ever thought about putting a, a coating on. Can you give any of our contractors that are listening or our specifiers that are listening uh, any good rules of thumb in terms of improving, uh, you know, performance of the coating? Yeah, if you're if you're using uh, shellac-based material, for example, um, uh, primers are generally formulated not to have a lot of hiding power. They have more resin than they do pigment, and it's the resin portion of the product that actually does the sealing and uh, really does the stain killing for you. Uh, one of the biggest uh, mistakes that most contractors make is they they paint a surface, they look at it visually, it doesn't look uniform, they have shadows coming through, and they immediately think it needs another coat. And that holds true with top coats, but it doesn't hold true with primers. Primers are not designed to hide, they're just designed to seal. And if you're using more, if you're using our pigmented shellac, you should only need one coat regardless of what it looks like uh, after one coat's been applied. So I think one of the biggest things, mistakes that a lot of contractors do is they use more product than they should or they need. What size tip and what pressure would you recommend for spraying your product? Well, every product is different. And to give you uh, an idea, BIN or our pigmented shellac is a product that is very thin viscosity material. And if you spray it at 800 to 1,000 pounds per square inch with an 11,000 or 13,000 tip, you should get 500 to 550 square feet per gallon coverage, one coat, uh, which is a tremendous spread rate. Uh, and it will seal and kill odors and everything in one coat. If I've been on a lot of fire jobs, and the, and, the, and the one easy way you can tell if somebody's over spraying our product is if you have a white fallout uh, in the air and covering all the surfaces in your drop gloss where you have white pigment just dropping to the surface. Uh, that's a, a big indication that they're over-atomizing and over-spraying the product and wasting product. 
John, how can a contractor that's listening or someone else that would like to learn more about your product get one of these uh, Paint and Primer 101 programs? Well, we offer How's that, that done? Yeah, we offer that traditionally to uh, any fire, smoke, mortar, or motor remediation people that really want to know a little bit more about coatings. You know, over the years, I've I've spoken with a number of different contractors, and their expertise in in killing uh, odors and, and and remediating fire, smoke, and mold is just unbelievable. Uh, but when it comes to knowing about paint, they really are not up to speed. And when we give these programs, just just to explain to them how paint's made and what it does and the differences between the different coatings, it's like the lights go on. You know, it's like wow, now I understand what what coatings are about, what paint's all about. And if you understand the basic principles of it, everything is pretty easy from that point on. But if the contractors would like a seminar of any one of our people to come out and do it, we'd be happy to do it. Uh, you could just email us. Um, you can email me, obviously, at john.brunoetzinzer.com, or uh, go on our website, zinzer.com, and uh, we'd be more than happy to have one of our people contact the contractor and set up something and come out and do it. How do you spell Zinzer? Z-I-N-S-S-E-R. That threw me. <laughs> <laughs> I think it throws a lot of people. It threw me, John. John, is there anything that you would like to add that we may have missed? No, I think we've covered pretty much everything. Um, uh, if anyone uh, has any questions about paint applications, uh, one of the other gr- rules, you know, we make four stain-killing primers, and uh, some people say, why do you need four? Because, quite frankly, there's not one that does everything. So one of the rules of thumb that we always use or put into a play is that always use the opposite formula of stain-killing primer of the stain you're trying to kill. So, for example, if you have oil, grease, asphalt stains, you certainly don't want to use an oil-based primer because that's going to reactivate that stain and bring it through the fill. So you would use the opposite in that particular case, a water-based primer. And the same thing goes true with a water stain. If you have water stains, you certainly don't want to use a water-based primer. You want to use an alcohol-based primer or an oil-based primer to rectify that. So it's just the opposite primer uh, formulation of the stain you're trying to kill. Is there is there any tip, John, that you'd like to give our consumer listeners that listen in regards to paint or yeah, well, preparation? You know, paint is, you know, I'm surprised that, you know, I'm not surprised actually, but most consumers know very little about paint and uh, don't really want to know a lot about it because it's not a topic that is, to, you know, you discuss over coffee most of the time. But, you know, if I were a consumer, and believe me, my neighbors ask me all the time, you know, what's the best paint? Who makes the best paint? Uh, how do I know it's good paint? Uh, the bottom line is really that all companies make, all paint companies make a good, better, best grade of paint. And just because it's Sherwin-Williams or Benjamin Moore or whatever doesn't necessarily mean it's the best you can buy. Because every company makes a good, a better, and a best. So generally speaking, the way to tell the better paints or, or the best paints are usually by price. The higher the price, usually the better the performance. Uh, and that's a simple way to really determine it. Well, that's excellent advice for our listeners, John. We'd like to thank you for joining us here today on IAQ Radio. And I uh, believe, I, Zach, could you check uh, number four there? Let's see if... Uh, 
The Dieter, the doctor's still on. Dieter, are you still on the line there? Yes, I am. Hello, Dieter. Anything you wanted to add or any well, questions you had? No, I agree that you know, uh, paint is, a, is, a, is an engineering product, and uh, I, I, I don't know much about the other paints, but I was heavily into the polyurethane systems, which were developed to have more uh, solids in them and, and, and fewer VOCs. And, uh, yep, I mean, uh, it is an engineered um, uh, a product that is m much more sophisticated than just white paint in a can. <laughs> and were you familiar with the shellac story, Dieter? Uh, yeah, I heard about it. Uh, we didn't push <laughs> when I worked for the Bayer Corporation. We didn't push Shellac so much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering, is Mike Mike O'Reilly, are you still on the line? Yes, absolutely. Hello, Mike. Anything you'd like to add before we go? Well, I thought it uh, first. I'd like to know if they kill those bugs. No, well, actually, the bug <laughs> the bug gets perishes within the incrustation, the female insect, uh -huh. uh, and then they crush him and wash him and remove them out of the, out of the shellac resin itself. Is that right? So you're not eating any bugs. Okay. Okay. Well, well I, I don't need, tell you that I don't need probably, paint either. Yeah, well, I think you've eaten more shellac than you've used. Probably. Because shellac is a, a coating for fruit and uh, candy and medicines and yes. vitamins and a well, number of different other substrates. What a wonderful thought. John, I thought your wealth of knowledge. I, 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 the one point I'd like to make, which is a great one, and one I didn't realize, was the hide versus seal uh -huh. and how contractors might be overdoing it because of the visual aspect. Right. Yeah, that was very interesting. Yeah, I mean, clear shellac will do the same thing as a pigmented shellac will do. Mm -hmm. And yet, if you put a clear shellac over stains, you'll see those stains forever, mm -hmm. no matter how many coats of clear shellac you put on. But once you put a coat, a top coat on, that's where your hide comes from, generally speaking. Right. Uh, then it disappears. Very good. All right. Dieter, anything else you wanted to add? No. Uh, read the label okay. of pesticides. The <laughs> otherwise you follow the label. Uh, follow the label. The label is the law. Otherwise, you become a felon. And <laughs> that's that's well, what it says again. on there. That's right. Thanks again to our our uh, technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, and to our two guests today, Mike O'Reilly from Tradewinds Environmental, and John Bruno from the Zinzer Company. Uh, this is Joe Hughes of IAQ Radio saying thanks to our listeners as well. And please come back next Friday at noon and join us for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. Thank you, Cliff. Thank you, Joe. I'm allergic to your cat.